0: I know that you know probably whoever you're working with in the past didn't charge an upfront fee but this is this is what I do this is how I help and the value I bring and you know here's the upfront cost and to my surprise they didn't bat an eye.
1: This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education including the Life Insurance Licensing Program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive Podcast. This is Jason Watt. In this episode, we're going to interview Melanie Goodhue. Melanie is an Ottawa-based financial planner. This episode would be good for a half a life insurance and a half an accident and sickness credit in Alberta. We cover some financial planning and some disability management here. In all other jurisdictions, it would be good for one insurance credit. It would be good for a financial planning credit from FP Canada, an IAS credit from Advocates, and a professional development credit from IROC. The color for today's episode is red. The color... For this episode is read. Okay, there's lots of stuff in this episode. Melanie has one quite complex case, and she had mentioned it in class, and I thought there's more to this, and there's, as you'll hear in the interview, we still don't get into all the detail that shows up here, but... There's lots going on. You've got a retirement question. uh, You've got a question about managing uh, disability claims and moving from various sources of income onto pensions and managing disability benefits as they end. There is a pension buyback question that's quite complicated, as pension buyback buyback questions tend to be. So, quite a ton going on here. I do want to highlight a couple of things here. First off not something we've exactly heard previously on the podcast but Melanie talks about integrating that financial planning fee into her business model and says look that really was much easier than I thought it was going to be very normal and for those of you who listen to the Kitses and Carl podcast Carl Richards talks about this a lot Michael Kitses talks about this somewhat where they talk about this idea that you have to get paid for the value you bring to clients and a lot of times people assume that they're not going to be able to charge properly. And I hope that hearing Melanie talk about this helps others to realize that there are a raft of different business models out there. And you can really build your practice around this. We've had quite a few advice only or fee only planners on the uh, podcast here in season three. I think Melanie's the first one to specifically express that sentiment. I do want to just mention something here. It's something that she and I didn't discuss in the interview, but I think it's a intangible benefit of doing things this way. It's very normal that when I'm in class, I hear students say things like, I wish that the client had told me before they made that decision. And it's things like car buying decision or a home purchase decision or a retirement decision. Or changing jobs. There's just a whole bunch of really major life decisions that I think clients are hesitant sometimes to talk to financial advisors or financial planners about. And I wonder sometimes if there's a, let's say, a subconscious link here where the client knows that the way that you get paid, and I know this is not universally true, but if you get paid all on commission, so if you're getting a commission for the sale of insurance products and a fee for assets under management, does the client feel like they're not going to call you because they're not thinking that you get paid to do that kind of work? That is, if they're just thinking about a career change or something like that or changing jobs, a big financial decision with lots of implications that I would suggest anybody listening to this podcast, probably wants to hear from their client about before they make that decision. But is the client potentially hesitant here because they say, I'm bothering that person, and I don't know if that's quite the right way to express this, or is it that it might be deeper in their subconscious where they just know that that's not how you get paid, and therefore it doesn't trigger for them that it might be worth giving you a call. Whereas, when you do something like what Melanie talks about here, and this client is a good example of this, you can hear the amount of work that she's done with this client. Really, a lot of it is going to ultimately be uncompensated work. Now, she does get paid up front for that uh, planning service, but like she says, that's not necessarily something that uh, adjusts to the workload. So, it's a little bit, uh, I think, more obvious to that client that. She's supposed to call Melanie when she has difficult financial decisions to make. And I think that's something worth thinking about. So if you're working on a commission-only model, that's great. I'm not being critical of that model. I think it's important, though, that if you want to hear from your clients in the midst of those life transitions, that there's some method there by which your clients know that, you're the resource they're supposed to be reaching out to prior to making those decisions. Now, another area that uh, Melanie gets into here, she talks about, uh, it's not quite, quite uh, choice architecture, but let's call it choice architecture. Uh, this idea that she has built all kinds of different paths and projections for this client. And she does a ton of work in Excel. Um, Some of this might be more efficient in financial planning software, but I know uh, sometimes people don't like the financial planning software because it doesn't give you enough control. There's not enough sort of say knobs and dials that you can tweak. So she's built out all these models and she shows the client that she's done all of that, but then really just narrows it down and says, but don't worry about all that other stuff. That's, That's my stuff. And let's just get to what you need today in order to understand the path that's in front of you. And I think that's a good trade-off where the client gets to see that Melanie has explored different paths. And this, by the way, is a classic way to reduce advisor bias. This is one way that your biases should get addressed. If you've built a bunch of different options or a bunch of different paths and looked at those, that's supposed to reduce your bias it also, in this case, I think demonstrates to the client that you're presenting a real value. You're not just doing sort of one thing and saying, this is how everybody gets treated. And now client, you're going to be along for the same ride that all of my clients would be. I know it's not quite uh, choice architecture, framing, however we want to present it. All right, let's hear what uh, Melanie has to say. We're joined here today by Melanie Goodhue. Melanie is a financial advisor based in Ottawa and you're uh, insurance licensed, Melanie, I have that right. And working your way through the financial planning curriculum as we speak. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about your own practice and how you ended up where you are?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I help individuals and small business owners grow their wealth at a rapid rate that they've never experienced before. So that's kind of my zone of genius. I'm able to produce really incredible results for my clients because my approach to planning and the Pulse process that I developed. The Pulse process is a series of five 90-minute sessions, an incredible amount of analysis in the background, and in the end, my client receives a 30 to 60-page bound financial plan. And that plan covers everything from maximizing cash flow management. We actually have our own proprietary tool, which has been really life-changing for a lot of people. To wealth building through investments and real estate, tax strategies, income, family and business protection through insurance. So we ensure that the empire we're building is as bulletproof as possible.
1: In these five 90-minute sessions, are these sort of rigidly structured? Are they loosely structured? How does that uh, look?
0: Yeah. So the framework for each meeting is pretty structured. However, you know, like any conversation, the details of each meeting can go off in other directions. But essentially, uh, the planning process is is gigantic, you know that. And so I really kind of break it into two parts, the wealth building and the financial security part. And then I break those into two separate meetings. And so uh, just to give you an idea, after that first meeting that we have that intake, then we move into the analysis and recommendations around financial security, and then we implement those recommendations. Then we move into analysis and recommendations around building wealth. We implement those, and then we have our ongoing annual reviews.
1: Okay. So each meeting, you essentially have a deliverable you're looking to accomplish. Right. Perfect. Yeah. And does the client know in advance of the meeting kind of what that deliverable is?
0: sure yeah they know before we even agreed to work together what the pulse process is all about and what they'll need to go through and i think that's really important because i know nine times out of ten this is not something they've seen before it's something we've developed and so oftentimes they will have worked with you know the bank or or another advisor that's on a more transactional basis and so i want people to know up front that this is certainly in the beginning at least a nice um, investment of their time for about a month or so. And then it's kind of smooth sailing on an annual basis with the reviews.
1: Got it. And you have your uh, smile story. Can you share the smile story with us? (laughs)
0: Yeah, Uh, I know that you were going to want to kind of ask how I ended up doing financial planning, and it was actually never my intention. So growing up, I was born with a cleft lip and palate. Have you heard about that before?
1: Yeah, I'm aware of that.
0: For people who haven't, uh, you know, it's a birth defect that affects roughly one in every 600 babies uh, in Canada, and it, uh, to put it very nicely, mangles children's teeth. It's really, really, really terrible. And so when you're about eight years old, you're supposed to go to CHEO and have all this elaborate dental work done and, you know, at least have a, a great smile scar on your lip, but a great smile. And I had a bit of a different upbringing and I just didn't have that opportunity. And so I moved out quite young. I moved out when I was 14 and I moved in with a friend and her family. And one of my first jobs was buttering toast at the local flying club in Smith Falls and serving breakfast to the rich old men there. And I guess one day I made quite an impression on this old man because he pulled my friend's dad aside outside on break. And he said, you know, I was chatting with Melanie and she seems like such a sweet, you know, beautiful young girl, but I can tell she has no self-confidence whatsoever. So I was wondering, you know, is there not anything they can do about that scar on her lip? And he said, the scar on her lip, have you not seen her teeth? And I never open smiled. I mean, from the time that... I could recognize vanity and when I was looking at him in the mirror, I never opened smiled. And so he said, look, he said, if she could fix anything in the world, it would be her teeth. But we just can't afford it. And this was something that, you know, I don't know, you know, what your faith is, what you believe in, but I remember like every single night praying to God, like crying every single night. I went through so much bullying about my teeth. And I remember praying as hard as I could every single night for a new smile. And here I was 14 years old in this flying club, buttering toast, serving breakfast. And this angel appears and he looks at my friend's dad and he said, well, look, I'm old. I've got a lot of money and I'm going to pass away soon. So he said, you take her, get her teeth fixed, whatever the cost is, I don't care. Send me the bill. And the only thing I ask is that you don't repeat my name to anybody. So to this day, I have never repeated his name to a single soul, not even my husband. And he gave me, I truly believe, a lot of what I have. Because as much as people want to say that, you know, looks don't matter. The reality is when you have that kind of a deformity in the middle of your face, looks really matter. And so he changed my world upside down for the better. And I really believed that I wouldn't have the things that I have or be in the position that I'm in if it weren't for him. So it became my mission to pay that forward. I didn't know what I wanted to do in life, but I knew whatever I was going to do, I wanted to be passionate about it. I'd seen so many adults in my life who were just in the grind and not enjoying day-to-day life. And so I knew I needed to find something I was really passionate about. So I thought I really wanted to get into dentistry. And so that <laughs> makes sense, right? So I went to, uh, decided, you know what, before I went for the entire plunge, I uh, started with dental assisting, went to Algonquin, took the program, graduated, uh, wrote my board exam and worked in the field for four months <laughs> and I could not do it. It was disgusting. I mean, it was really different being in school, working on dummies and working on your peers who have these like beautiful white teeth because, you know, the profession they're choosing to be in than working in what you could imagine is just out there in the general public. So I went back to school and um, took the general office admin, figured that would kind of open the door to any industry. I could figure out then what I liked and then go from there. And it really was, you know, luck of the draw. I went through a headhunter. They found me a, a job in a local planning firm here in Ottawa. And I was an admin for them for four years and just really fell in love with the industry. I was not very good with my own money for the longest time. And it was through creating my own plan that I became in a much better position. So I saw very early on the incredible value of planning and how that can really turn someone's life around. And I wanted to be a part of that. I felt that that would be a great way to help people. So started my business and I started a smile fund. So a portion of all of my income from the proceeds of my planning go into a little pot of money. And I've, I had been building that up for a while. And this past year, actually, it reached the 5000 that I wanted to gift to a child. And I had put a video out on social media and had lots of shares and likes and all of that to try and find this underprivileged child with a cleft lip and palate to no avail. So by all means, if you <laughs> would like to help me find this child, I would love to gift them the money for a new smile.
1: I do recall reading somewhere about a dentist who makes a trip to, and I can't remember exactly where, but somewhere in East Africa every year to help kids with cleft.
0: Palate. Oh, that's awesome!
1: If anybody has that uh, child in mind, reach out to Melanie and
0: yeah, that would be wonderful.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful story, Melanie. It's touching and you know very uh, appropriate the way that you're <laughs> in that memory. It's you know I I don't know if I could. Uh, like not tell my wife that guy's name. That's a big win. So it sounds like as much as you say you didn't plan to end up here and you kind of quasi ended up in the industry by accident, but then you had time while you were at your prior firm to think about this. And clearly you put some thought into building the Pulse process. Overall, how much intentional design went into your, your practice as it stands now?
0: Yeah, so I think a couple of things when you're trying to decide, you know, how how do I want to build this business? I mean, you can't ignore revenue, right? That's what makes you be able to pay your bills and the world go around. And you need to also look at, you know, who do you want to work with? And so in my first year of business, I, like anyone else in their first year of business, worked like a dog and I made about (laughs) $12,000, right? Second year, not a whole lot more. And my peers kept telling me how incredible the work that I was doing for people was. And in the same breath, how crazy I was and how wrong I was for taking on such an in-depth approach and comprehensive approach to financial planning. They told me I'd never make a comfortable living that way. And you know what? They were right. But I didn't want to change my approach. I truly, truly felt that the holistic, comprehensive planning approach Was the right thing for the client. It made sure that no stone is left unturned, that we really are looking at every facet of their life. And if it took me a lot longer to do, I was going to do it because it's the right thing for the client. So I didn't take their advice. I didn't start becoming more transactional and just getting in and, you know, just setting up an RSP and then, you know, or setting up an insurance policy and seeing where it goes it's not my approach. I strongly believe that, you know, if you're going to look at how to invest somebody, or if you're going to look at how much insurance they need, how can you do that without looking at all the other facets of their financial picture? That's just my belief. So for me, you know, I decided that I needed to do this approach, but My peers were right. I wasn't going to make a viable living by doing that, because I was able to see significantly less clients than all of my peers who were taking the transaction approach. And again, I think for other people, there's nothing wrong with transaction approach. So hear me loud and clear that way. But it just didn't make sense to me and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to run my business. So I decided that to be able to continue to offer that level of service to my clients and planning that I needed to charge for that upfront pulse process that I created, those five 90 minute sessions, and all the, you know, 30 to 40 hours of background work and the bound financial plan that they get. And so, you know, I was, it was really terrifying to be sort of the outlier and come out and say to people, I know that you know, probably whoever you're working with in the past, didn't charge an upfront fee. But this is this is what I do. This is how I help and the value I bring. And, you know, here's the upfront cost. And to my surprise, they didn't bat an eye, they didn't bat an eye, because they could see what they had done previously, the service that they received, and they could see the clear difference between what they were going to get with me. And there was no problem with that. So that brings me to ideal clients. Um, Like anyone in their first few years, I would take on anyone. I took on some big debt clients, which was an incredible amount of work. I mean, I charged about half of what I do for planning. And it easily took about double the time and effort um, because it would also, to keep people accountable and on track, have monthly coaching calls with all of these people. So it was incredibly rewarding, I have to say. I mean, I was able to save a number of people from bankruptcy, get them out of debt entirely and have them set up for retirement. And so for me, I remember the greatest thing that I've probably ever heard from a client was he had such bad sleep problems from all the stress and anxiety and worry that when we got him out of that situation and into a great place, the greatest testimonial I ever received was him saying, "Thank you, I can finally sleep at night." So it was so rewarding, so rewarding. But again, sort of like my peers said, "You're crazy. You're never going to make money and <laughs> money that way." So I had to pivot. And while I do still, you know, help people with some debt, if people come to me and they really need the help, of course, i will help them. But, you know, now my clientele really is more in the, you know, 30 to 45, great cash flow, maybe some debt, you know, they want to travel, they want to expand their real estate portfolio, start really building their wealth for retirement, all that good stuff. And so that's sort of how I pivoted and shifted to the clients that I work with today.
1: I hear this all the time. In fact, you're not even the first person to come on the podcast and talk about the heavy reward associated with helping somebody deal with that debt issue. But I do get the trade off there where it's a ton of work. In my pro bono side, I deal with people who are burdened by debt. And a lot of these engagements take two or three years to sort out, and sometimes longer. So I understand that trade off. So when you say you're not actively seeking out that debt burdened client anymore. Was that a shift in your marketing or is there something there that changed in how you ask for referrals or is it something on your website? What do you change to to make that shift from looking for this type of client?
0: Well, I think it was a number of things. I think it was, you know, those clients coming from a bad debt situation now into a period of wealth growing. And so people around them want to know what, what are they doing? Who are they working with? You know, I want to build wealth too. I think it was also that uh, building my own network of business owner women, I, I tend to connect, you know, I, Um, have a great network of business owner women. And they're usually who I connect with first and the husband and family come along with them. So I think it was just time, right. And in the beginning of the business, you're just going to take on whoever you you can. Right. And then over time, as you're building these relationships and spending times in these circles with the people that are more your um, ideal target in terms of, you know, revenue and um, ease too, right. Like there's so much work that goes involved, you know, And that's one thing I really love about you is all the pro bono work that you do, but you know, it's an incredible amount of work, right? So when we're building our business and we're trying to figure out what's going to give us sort of maximum return on our money, that we're still going to be able to help people, uh, but that's not going to be a drain on us, you know, 24-7 mentally, emotionally, time, effort, and all of that, that was kind of the shift and so I think it really was once people started to seriously build wealth, they started to tell their friends. And then also just over time building my own network of people and being in those the circles of people that um, were more my ideal client. I think it was those two things. And then intentionally in my marketing, I actually, if you've ever seen my signature or my website where it used to say debt repayment investments and insurance, and now it says building wealth i'm trying to remember the other two invest your money and protect your assets or something like that so there's nothing in there about that i still do get some people to come to me with some debt but it's not the focus anymore
1: it makes sense and that's that's what i was looking for yeah what are those concrete things you've done to change and it sounds like both a, a sort of mindset shift on your part as well as some change in how you market so yeah, interesting now You did a good job when you were going through core curriculum of bringing some interesting client scenarios to bear. I always appreciate this because it's better to work through, as you know, a, a case study than it is to sort of work through a theoretical concept. So one of the scenarios you brought was one where there's a substantial pension buyback and a whole bunch of other stuff happening all at the same time. Can you give a little bit of a background on this case, of course, respecting client confidentiality here?
0: Yeah, of course. And I did speak with this client and ask her if she would mind if I left out her name and spoke about the details of her case. You know, let her know that this would be a really great learning opportunity for a lot of other advisors out there. And she was more than happy to do that. So she's a doozy case and she knows she's a doozy case. She's got a lot of moving parts in there. And that's what makes it so complex, but also so I love working on this stuff. I love when you get some curveballs, and there's nothing more that I enjoy than you know, rolling up the sleeves, digging in and trying to figure it out. Um, and I'm super thankful to have, you know, people like you in my corner to help me with that. So, yeah. So for her, she, uh, she's in her mid forties. Um, she's going through a final separation from her spouse. She was considering when we started working together in September, selling the matrimonial house, she had built up some debt over time. She had been on disability at this point from the government uh, for a couple of years. And previous to that, had taken leave for a couple of years on her pension. She's in a lawsuit against the people who got her in this accident and is now faced with many decisions. And that is sort of the Coles notes, but there are more factors, of course, in there. So she was faced with a lot of decisions. Should she buy back or not? how much does she need for spousal and child support to maintain her lifestyle now that they're separated, both now and when or if her income reduces, you know, when or if her disability decides to stop the claim and when she draws a pension, when the sale of her matrimonial house sales, she wants to be debt-free, have enough to cover the buyback, if that's the best option, will she have enough to purchase a new house too? Is that a good idea or should she keep renting? If she purchases, can she qualify now that she's on her own and on disability and potentially medically retiring? What kind of place could she afford to purchase? You know, she feels she can't return to work. Should she attempt medical retirement? Um, How would this reduced income affect her lifestyle? You know, her disability plan may not continue her claim past six months from now. How would this further affect her lifestyle? If she medically retires, should she transfer her pension or leave it as is? So there was an overwhelming amount of questions here, not even just for the average planner, but think about just the average person who doesn't work in finance and have to make these decisions. In fact, when we were chatting on the phone last night, she says, you know, Melanie, I'm a really intelligent person, even with my head injury, you know, she was a high level executive in the government. And she says, even at that time, full capacity, you know, mental capacity, I don't think I'd be able to come close to tackling how to figure all of this out.
1: So given the huge number of issues here and the complexity, I mean, any one of these is a complex issue on its own. Mm. How did you figure out what problem to solve first?
0: Yeah, so really it's you know, what is most pressing, and for this client, when she had come to me, she said, you know, they're going to reevaluate my disability in in less than a year. And at that point, you know, like, I don't feel I can go back to work, my doctors don't feel I can go back to work, but they're telling me potentially, I could lose my disability, you know, and if that happens, will I be okay? Um, You know, like, should I, Medically retired? Is that a good idea? Will I be okay? You know. So the very first thing was kind of dealing with those things, and then the the buyback. You know, I have four years or three years to to buy back. Is that a good idea? You know, we're going to be selling our house in the next number of months. Potentially, we could have funds to put towards that. Again, is that a good idea? Uh, you know, with all my other goals in mind. So. It really came down to what was most pressing and what was most pressing I felt for this client was, you know, yes, help her figure out, does the buyback even make sense? Because that's sort of an easy checkmark, whether or not she has the funds or whatnot is another story, but let's just find out if it makes sense. And then for her would be uh, the first thing we did is we created, I think by now, I have about 15 different budget <laughs> tabs for her. You know, If she stays in this position, if she medically retires, if she loses her disability, if, 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 if. And that was the most important thing for her because that helped her determine, okay, what would happen in each of these scenarios? Now she came into it going, okay, I know, that you know the best course of action for me I can't work so I am going to attempt to medically retire and I know that if I don't receive my disability I'm going to be in a pickle so I need to fight for that So now she is making sure she's going to doctors and specialists getting reports. She is now decided because of that to do everything in her power to support that. So now she's applying for the disability tax credit. Then she's going to apply for the CPP disability income because if she gets that, although it won't give her more income because the disability policy would reduce in her mind, right? We discussed that if she gets that, if she gets her medical retirement and she gets her CPP disability tax credit and pension. How is the disability company? I mean, at the end of the day, they can do what they want, but how could they justify not paying that disability income further?
1: I would just tack in there. The other benefit to qualifying for CPP disability is that if she has nil contributions, then from now until retirement age, those nil contributions don't count against her CPP Retirement, right? You get to opt out those years. So there is a a mathematical benefit there, if you want to look at it that way, an income benefit. So
0: definitely, yeah.
1: So working through an Excel spreadsheet like that, you say you've got this 15 tabs and you know tons of outputs. Is this something where it's really about you getting to sort of one number or 15 numbers that you can share with the client? Would you send that? whole spreadsheet to the client to look through what what sort of output do you get out of this and what does this help with your thought process
0: yeah it's a it's a great question so especially because all the numbers in each scenario are preliminary we don't know exactly you know what net income she will receive in all these different scenarios they really are rough numbers the purpose of them is just to give an idea of each individual situation. I typically don't share, I mean, she has access to it if she wants it, but I'm very careful to put a huge disclaimer that, you know, these are just rough ideas. But typically, so just yesterday when we had our call, I ended up saying, you know what, rather than overwhelm me with 15, how about I just I'm going to save it as a new document, delete all the tabs except for your current situation and what will happen in April when you lose one of your disability policies, because her other disability policy is just a loan payment policy. So that for sure is ending. It was only a two year benefit. So that for sure is ending in April. And so that's going to be a dent in her budget. And she said, yeah, that's great. So that's kind of an example of how, I mean, I do all the background legwork, but you have to be careful, right, of overwhelming the client, especially, I mean, the average client, never mind someone, you know, the brain injury, it's just too much. So I will do all the background work, have a meeting with a client and speak to that maybe do a screen share and show her to give her some ideas. And then I'll just sort of create a little summary, if you will, um, if she even wants that in an email, just to say, you know, from our conversation today, speaking very roughly, here is what a few scenarios might look like for you if these things play out this way. Um, So that's what we've been doing.
1: I've seen this with you in class where I think just for you to be comfortable giving an opinion or advice that, that you have to have a good understanding of the numbers that went into it. I just don't think you're satisfied until you can place those numbers in your head.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all different and I am a hundred percent, the kind of person that I don't, I don't like to guess if I can give an exact answer or refer to something very specifically, I will do that because I'm not, you know, dealing with people's shoes. I'm dealing with their money and I want to make sure that, you know, if I don't fully understand it, or if I can't say with 100% certainty or feel 100% confident, you know, how can I make a decision or say something to a client that they're potentially going to make another decision off of if it's not 100% accurate? I just can't do that. I don't feel comfortable with that. So you hit the nail on the head.
1: And I know it's not just about the numbers. That even you had sent me one of the Excel sheets you're working with this client on. No, no identifying information, but you didn't just have the numbers in there, You even in your Excel spreadsheet, you had your sort of intangibles, your, your behavioral concerns. Is that just to keep you on track? Is it to have those listed someplace? Is it so you have sort of a checklist?
0: Yeah, the, I'm, I'm looking at the Excel now and you know, it really comes down to, this is an incredible amount of information, like an incredible amount. And it's a great way to organize it all. And it is important when you're looking at a plan, as you know, you know, especially going through the curriculum is it's not about the numbers, right? You do also have to look in there. Like I have, the facts and then I have my calculations and I have the actual pension statement numbers and then I have you know the qualitative considerations for whether to take a transfer or a buyback or not because those are just as important as running the numbers and figuring out the rate of return required. And if you're not also looking at you know potential income sources and assets and potential income and all of that, then you're not looking at it holistically and your recommendation isn't going to be solid.
1: In this case, and this is exactly what I find, I think this is true for every pension buyback question I've ever heard, that the question shows up and we don't have all the details, that it's always the case that, you know, somebody will the sort of preliminary question, and then when we get into trying to work through the numbers, there's some detail that's missing. So in this case, I think that was the same experience if memory serves correctly. How did you work through uh, going from having not quite enough information to getting the the full amount of information.
0: Yeah. So this client's been wonderful to work with, you know, some people, Uh, come to you and they sort of have unrealistic expectations you know they'll give you a couple pieces of information and say great so what should I do and that was not the case with her she recognized that you know you know having been in the government for 27 years she knows that you know sometimes it takes a long time to get you know all the information that you need um, and accurately and so there was this mutual verbal understanding between us that you know what this is not. This is not going to be that five-step process in one-month plan at all. We're actually throwing that a bit out the window, and we are have committed to each other that this is probably going to take about a year in the end, maybe a bit more, to have gathered all the details and have gathered all the answers uh, to then be able to make the appropriate decisions. So, uh, you know, when she first came to me. She gave me some statements and it actually showed a buyback amount of half the amount. And then, you know, over time, she gave me another statement that then gave an updated amount, right? So it's all about getting the most accurate information. And, you know, she doesn't always have access to that right away. And so then it's like, okay, no problem. We'll update our numbers. We'll reconvene. Okay, what does this look like now? What's changed in terms of our game plan? And so it's been really cool to, you know, over time, I get little pieces. And then I run more analysis and we have a meeting. And we look at what the situation looks like now. And then I say, okay, when XYZ happens, bring that to me, we'll, we'll take the next step. So this is definitely a different kind of case uh, that I'm taking a completely different approach to. Uh, and it's been a lot of
1: fun. I can remember if it was late in season one or early in season two, but on this podcast I had Tab on previously, and he had a pension buyback question as well. And his was a young person who missed a year of service. It was either 12 or $14,000, I can't remember exactly. This is not twelve or $14,000. This one ends up well into the six-figure range.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: It really does make the, the question so much more complicated, right? There's, never mind the, the math, as you rightly stated, there's a ton of emotion just deciding to write a check. I know that's not exact, but to write a check for that amount, right?
0: Yeah, there really is, right? You get into, can the client even afford that? you know, for this client, she's selling uh, a sizable matrimonial home, but she also has other things, right? She has an amount of debt she wants to pay down. She wants to potentially be able to purchase another home. Uh, She does want to, when we have more answers and we know what her cash flow looks like, of course, now having an injury, she wants to make sure that you know, she doesn't have critical illness. Can we get that for her? If we can, she'd love to implement that. So there's so many other elements that you look at rather than just, do you have the money, right? You have to look at the entire picture. So you're 100% right. And also with the buyback or, or pension transfer, you know, we've touched on this a little bit, but, you know, you're not just looking at rate of return, right? You're looking at, you know, does the client deem it important to have complete control over their their money or not? Or are they, you know, more comfortable with receiving a steady, eddy income on a monthly basis for life, and they know that that's pretty much guaranteed? That the risk of default is low. Or do they not like that? Do they need access to their capital if they want it? Is that really important to them? You know, having that liquidity. You know, if if they're going to transfer their pension, then the cash is theirs, if they were to pass away there, they can name whatever beneficiary they want, and that full value would go to them, right? Not the same case when you're looking at a pension, right, your beneficiary, depending on the type of pension you're in, is either going to get, you know, commuted value or a portion of the pension. So that's something to consider. And then also, you know, if you're taking your transfer, or you're deciding to invest that 134,000 that you would have paid to the buyback instead, are you comfortable with knowing and feeling that you're responsible for market performance? And that market performance and those investment decisions that you make depend on whether or not you will have the income that you need in retirement. Can the client handle that? What's their comfort level with that risk? And how are they with that psychological stress,
1: right? On that note of dealing with pensions, I'm assuming you have a lot of pension conversations, just being in Ottawa where you'd have so many Clients with pensions. Does this influence how you do planning?
0: So you're right. Most of my clients are, you know, women business owner and then husband, usually, you know, executive in the government making a pension or um, large company pension. And so I really love planning with that because there's this base level of certainty that we can create a financial plan and monthly contributions to their goals on. And we have this flexible pot of money that, you know, we build up the profit, and then we decide on how to supplement their goals with that every year. So it's definitely a a different way of planning. Because if you have two steady eddies, right? Two pension clients or two employees. I mean, the income is what it is. It's not going to be more or less. It is what it is unless, you know, they get a raise or something like that. But if you have one steady Eddie and one business owner, it's kind of exciting because then on an annual basis, you don't really know what's going to happen, how much they're going to have. And so sometimes it's really great. Sometimes it's as expected. And so I enjoy that kind of planning.
1: On the note then of having that, you know, that steady-eddy income, as you say, if you have a client without pension, do you think about annuities? Do you have annuity discussions with your clients?
0: So my demographic isn't there yet, right? So the, most of my clients are in the 30 to 45. I've got a couple in there that are 50 to 55. And just given their you know, risk tolerance and mindset, with they're investing in their philosophy and approach, either one, just the, the demographic conversation isn't there yet. We're not even close to that. Or two, um, it's just not in line with how they feel about investing.
1: That does make sense. I get that. I have a soft spot in my heart for annuities, but yeah. I wouldn't be talking <laughs> about it with 40 year olds either, right? It just not make sense. Now, a similar sort of question here. When do you start talking with your clients about the the CPP decision? Are they are they too young for that conversation or would you have that conversation maybe with your business owner clients younger is there is that something you you get into at all?
0: Yeah, so in my, you know, 30 to 45, not so much. Of course, in, you know, the 50 plus who are probably within, you know, 10 years we do talk about CPP. So at that point, right, we can go in find out what their CPP at 60 versus 65 is, we can project out, you know, what that looks like in terms of their goal, if they were to take it at 60 versus taking it at 65, and how that would affect their retirement lifestyle, would it accomplish their goal or not. So it's definitely appropriate for them at that age, sometimes it makes sense to take it you know, earlier depends on longevity cash flow, sometimes it makes sense to take it later. In terms of business owners, that conversation oftentimes is, you know, the salary versus dividends, right? And that's how kind of the CPP feeds into that. And so we have that conversation about, you know, if you're, you're taking a salary, then you will be, you know, forced to pay into that CPP pension. And that's what this looks like, you know, you're maxing out at about $60,000. So over that, then if you want to look at, you know, salary dividends, you can, you know, but be mindful that, you know, if your business really is in great growth mode, then, you know, down the road, you may need more RSP room than you're building up on just taking 60,000 salary from the business So be mindful of that. Where is your business headed? Are you the kind of business that you're cool as a cucumber with how you're doing right now, and this is what it will be? Then that's an easier conversation to determine salary versus dividends or combination of both. But if your business is in serious growth mode, then we may want to consider, you know, increasing that salary to give you more room because while it might not seem super important today, at some point you're going to be desperate to find any way to reduce your taxable income.
1: It's a good holistic way to look at the CPP decision, Melanie. I like that. I'm a big fan of that longer term perspective around RSP room. Now, I know you've done work with accountants in the past on your commuted value slash buyback slash pension decisions. Can you talk a little bit about how you work with accountants here?
0: Yeah, so accountants are a huge part of the planning that I do. Uh, I do tell my clients I take that holistic planning approach. And what that really means too, is working with these other professionals like accountants and lawyers and mortgage brokers and real estate agents and that sort of thing. So in terms of working with accountants, I think it's really important specifically with these, you know, buybacks, do I do it or not? And also the pension transfers a big one, because I want to ensure that I'm always taking into consideration tax implications, particularly when it comes to those pension transfers. I mean, you could be looking for this particular client Case that we've been talking about. If she did transfer her pension, which we of course looked at that option too, she'd be paying three hundred thousand dollars in taxes, right? So that's really important to know. And I don't want to estimate that. Are you kidding? <laughs> that, that's something I want the accountant to review her particular situation and her, you know, pension statement and what does that look like on the tax because that's a huge consideration. And, you know, if you're not looking at the tax side, how easy would it be for a client to say, just on their own, if they were trying to figure this decision out to say, no, I want to take the the million bucks, I want to take the, you know, 1.3 million, I mean, I can invest that and be good, you know, they make that decision. And oh, my gosh, I didn't know I had to pay $300,000 of taxes, this changes the situation completely. And so, Jason, I think it's really important. I've helped a number of people now determine buyback or no buyback, transfer pension or not. And I have to say, there's a lot of times where it actually does make sense to transfer the pension for a number of reasons. Again, rate of return, we look at first just to have that checkbox, but then we look at all the other reasons too. But there are situations like this client where it is absolutely not the right decision to transfer her pension. And just to give you an idea on that, because we did run the numbers is that if she transferred her whole pension, she'd have to essentially guarantee that net rate of return should be making almost 7% every single year. And when you think about, you know, COVID and what's going on around the world, and even in just the next few years, never mind what could potentially happen in future. I mean, to be blunt with you, I'm not super comfortable with guaranteeing that to my client. I can't guarantee my client that. So in that situation, just on the basis of rate of return, I would want the client to keep their pension. It's some sort of a guaranteed income. So when I work with accountants, it's important that to look at the tax, but my accountants are awesome. They give me, um, they, they run their own calculations. I can compare that against mine, right? And to get that second perspective on whether it's right for the client's particular situation, given everything else, it's really important. So getting the precise tax implications and the second calculation to me, two heads are better than one.
1: And just to be clear here, then it's not you saying go to your accountant and talk to them about it. it it's really you gather a bunch of information and you send that off to the accountant.
0: Yeah, of course, with their uh, permission. Um, and, and that's because I mean, listen, there's a ton of great accountants out there. But you know, it's like any profession. We're not all cut from the same cloth. We don't all take the same approach. You know, and for me, you know, if the client really wants me to work with their accountant, I'm happy to do that. At the same time, you know, I know that my accountant does these things on a regular basis. He, this is like an old shoe to him, these calculations and tax implications and this analysis, he does this all the time. And so for me, I prefer to reach out to my contacts for this type of thing because I I know that they're very experienced in that area.
1: And does your accountant do this because you because you send him regular work because you ask nicely because
0: yeah so I mean if a client needs an accountant he's getting the business uh, I've sent him a lot so um, he likes that but yeah so because of that you know I, I'm pretty lucky you know we don't have I don't pay him on an hourly rate or anything like that he has my own personal business you know I walk the walk I don't just talk the talk he's amazing um, but yeah I'm very lucky he doesn't send me a bill when uh, I ask him to do these we just have this understanding that you know if he's helping a client with a pension calculation he's going to have a discussion with them because I introduced them and 9 times out of 10 he's gaining that client so
1: that makes sense and that's that's what I figured but I run into all kinds of things
0: so. yeah for sure
1: now thinking back to this again this complex client if you could jump in the time machine 10 years back and have her as a client then mm-hmm. what Changes for her? What do you see as being better in her situation, or just what decisions are easier at this point?
0: Yeah. So, if we worked together 10 years ago, at that point, you know, even if she had all her group coverages and everything, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I have my group benefits, right? And it's through our conversation uh, and our analysis that we help the client understand no, like that's the group benefits I'm a huge fan of but we have to understand their limitations, right? They have maximums, for example, life insurance, one to two times your income. You have the option to add on more, nine times out of 10 people haven't, right? There's not nine times out of 10, there isn't critical illness in there. And nine times out of 10, there's a, a maximum amount of disability income that, you know, especially when you're dealing with high level of, of executives, is not adequate. And so had we started working with each other 10 years ago while she was young and healthy, um, we would have been able to get you know her critical illness in place. We would have been able to get her top up on her insurance, get some permanent insurance in place for her at a time when she very likely would have qualified at standard rates, because she wouldn't have been in the position of having a head injury and then trying to get coverage. She's still covered when she loses her benefits without paying an astronomical premium, if we had put those things in place, you know, she will have the opportunity when she leaves this plan to convert her life insurance. But we know that her only option will be to put that into permanent. And that's going to be a high premium, right? So we would have eliminated that. Um, She'd have a nest egg built up for sure of some general savings, which would eliminate the need to reduce her lifestyle expenses today, given her lower income amount that she's about to face. And she'd also have a good chunk of her debt paid off, if not all of it. Um, So she'd have a whole lot more to put towards her home purchase.
1: On the topic of disability insurance, again, going back to you have lots of clients who are business owners, lots who you said are high earners in government jobs. Do you find that there's a good uptake on disability insurance? Or do you find that people have the sticker shock or the maybe confidence that their group LTD will take care of them, which to be fair, sometimes it does. But as you say, it's not always the, the solution. What's your response on that conversation?
0: Yeah. So especially if it's just a top up, people are really receptive to it because there isn't that sticker shock. I find there's sticker shock when people come and they don't have group benefits, right? Because they sit down and they go, oh my gosh, how how could this cost me, you know, hundreds of dollars in a month? And it's like, well, <laughs> you don't have anything. You don't have disability. You don't have critical illness. You don't have life insurance. You don't have group benefits with a base of that that then we're just topping up to, right? And so it's just really helping the client understand, like, you know, and, and if you did have that group benefit plan, then you would believe it or not, (laughs) off your paycheck, you would be paying for this stuff, right? Now you just, it it comes off of your bank account, you know, Um, and so similar, but the sticker shock is nine times out of 10 when people don't have group benefits in place already, because people with group benefits, I know they have this mentality that they're not really paying for it, even though they know they are, they feel like they're not really, and then this is just a bit more.
1: Yeah, not having to write a check for something does make it Less painless to pay for it.
0: Yes, it does. But, you know, I I have the conversation with people right from the get go that your most valuable asset, it's not your house, not your cottage, it's your income, you know. And I I tell people, okay, well, what's your house worth? Your house is worth $500,000. Okay. How much income are you making? $100,000. You know, the average disability in Canada past 90 days is three years, right? Now, that's $300,000 right there. But if you lose your income, let's say until 65, you get in a doozy of an accident. Unfortunately, sometimes that happens. Well, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars now are you out? Right. So for a coffee a day, is it worth it to you to know that if something happened to you, Your bills would be paid, the food would still be on the table, your retirement, you know, would still be intact, you wouldn't have to be eating cat food in retirement. You know, how important is that to you? Is it worth it not to uh, spend, you know, the equivalent of a coffee every day for that level of risk? And and if you think that it is, let's look at your net worth sheet and tell me in your net worth sheet, where you would get $300,000 if you were to be this stat and be disabled for three years, where would you get that? And that's where the mind shift happens is when people go, OK, no, I'd actually have to take that money from somewhere. And when you show them the visual, here's what's in your RSPs, here's your house value, are you going to remortgage that? here's your line of credit, are you going to pay 12% on 300,000? Like, when people actually get that visual and have to pretend to make a decision on where to take that money, all of a sudden, it makes a lot of sense to spend that coffee a day to mitigate that risk.
1: That's some old school disability insurance sales technique, right?
0: (laughs) But it's really helpful for helping people understand, you know,
1: so you've been really good about working through this scenario with us, Melanie, and taking us down the path of what's helped you to build your business to where you have it today. Uh, do you have any last minute thoughts, comments, questions before we uh, break here?
0: I don't think I do. Just a reminder that I am looking for an underprivileged child to give a smile to. So I would love it if anyone who's listening, if you have a child in mind, please feel free to reach out. Money is burning a hole in my pocket. I need to spend
1: it. <laughs> Perfect. That's a great message to end with. And uh, thanks so much, Melanie. Enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: Thanks, Jason. Okay, lots there in that uh, conversation with Melanie. I just want to touch on something that we didn't go into in the interview. And I wish I'd asked about this listening to the uh, audio a second time now. She specifically mentioned that one of the sources of disability benefits is about to end. But that was a creditor policy. And I didn't follow up on that and I should have. And it's just something worth noting here. So there's lots of incidental sales of insurance. I assume this is what this is. So whether it was car loan insurance or with your mortgage, but very normal to bundle this in. I think a lot of people listening to this will be very familiar with mortgage life insurance. But it's very normal today to see this bundled with disability and critical illness as well. When you have this, typically you're going to find something like they'll make the minimum payments for two or three years or pay interest only for two or three years. Sometimes you see with critical illness insurance that there is actually the potential to pay the full amount of debt, although it's often limited. I know a few of the critical insurance policies available, the major banks will pay the full amount of your mortgage up to $500,000. So it's worth noting that uh, creditor disability insurance policies have a huge range of benefits available, and you can't assume anything here. And it can be sometimes a little bit difficult to get the full details. You might have to get somebody's Full mortgage contract and read through the mortgage contract to see what the disability coverage actually looks like. Some of the banks are fairly transparent about this. I'll give props to Scotia Bank, for example. Scotia has a good website that illustrates their mortgage coverage. They have some YouTube videos that explain it. There is good stuff out there. It's still sometimes not that easy to figure out what is covered in the event of a disability. Where somebody has that incidental insurance in place. The number for today's episode is four. The number is four. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz and also you'll have to pay attention to the interview there are 5 questions in there and you'll want to do well on all 5 pass grade is 60% so the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online that's bcc is in business career college so pop over to bccquiz.online there's a short 5 question quiz there You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. Fifteen bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, I hope you'll join us again in two weeks when we'll hear from Julia Chung. Julia is, of course, one of the pioneers in the area of advice-only financial planning. So join us then. It's uh, an episode where I learned a lot, and I hope you do as well. Thanks so much, and enjoy your continued studies. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Ryan Wynn takes care of all of our continuing education approvals, and Sushami Pamelo Paquette, uh, G. Lou, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.